You're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Clap if you believe. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. I am so happy to have you here tonight with me, Spike Cohen, who did not die in Hurricane Florence. I am so happy to be here, and I'm so happy that you're here with me. If you are watching this, please uh, hit us up. Uh, uh, feel free to comment with any questions that you have for me and my guest. Uh, I have a guest this time. I actually have a guest. Wonder of wonders. Uh, comment with any questions that you have. Uh, or just comment with your opinion, and uh, me and my guests will let you know if you're right or wrong. Um, be sure, if you have not already, please hit us up on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud. Subscribe to all of those things. The last thing that you or I want is for you to miss even one moment of me, Spike Cohen, or of Muddied Waters Media, Matt Wright as well, but definitely of me, Spike Cohen. So be sure to hit us up. If you subscribe on YouTube, hit the bell. You have to hit the bell. It is apparently crucial that you hit the bell so please hit the bell um go on to youtube hit the bell don't do it right now watch this but then hit the bell later um i'd like to thank muddied waters media as always uh, for this opportunity uh for me to be in front of you and to share my my show with you um i'd like to thank zephyr hills for my this water from either the crystal springs of florida or other 
apparently many different springs in Florida this could have come from. Beautiful Florida Zephyr Hills water. Thank you so much. Bula Vanaka. Thank you again. And uh, as always, my intro and outro music for this and so far every episode of My Fellow Americans is by the wonderful and illustrious Joe Davi, J-O-D-A-V-I. Hit him up on Facebook, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. He's on the Bandcamp. Get all of his stuff on the Bandcamp. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him. And um, this show is in memory of my late mother-in-law, Naomi Powlett. She, uh, today would have been her birthday. Uh, she was a very sweet woman, a devoted mother, a incredibly hard worker. Um, I have nothing but good things to, to, to say about her. She raised a wonderful woman in my wife, and I am so grateful for that. Um, she has missed every day that she's gone. Um, we love you and, and miss you, Naomi, and happy birthday. Um, so guys, my guest tonight is, he's an absolute legend, frankly. Uh, he is the creator, creator of the Voluntarist comic book series. Uh, he's one of the founders of, uh, Anarchy Ball. He is the, uh, originator of the Taxationist Theft Viral campaign. If you are one of, uh, my followers, uh, you know how obnoxious I've been with the Taxationist Theft memes for the last, I don't know, two or three years now. Uh, so you can thank Jack for that, my guest. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming my guest and libertarian superhero, Jack Lloyd. Jack, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, of course. Thank you, Spike, for uh, having me on. It's my pleasure. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm so glad I, we, we actually had you booked, uh, for the show that didn't happen because, uh, I had to run away from a hurricane. Um, and then, uh, I just, uh, totally dropped the ball in planning anything last week. So I ended up just eating dinner in front of the mic, uh, in front of the, the camera for an hour. So this show will be a definite improvement from that. So thank you for that. Oh, of course. I'm just glad you survived, you know, without getting washed away. That would have been tragic. I did survive and it would have been tragic. Thank you for acknowledging <laughs> that. It, uh, I, I'm very, very happy to not be dead. Um, as I said on my show yesterday, I have, uh, MS and, uh, and then there was a hurricane. So that's technically a comorbidity. Uh, I could have died of MS in a hurricane and that would have oh, been, wow. uh, that would have been horrific. But that didn't happen, that so thank you. Um, so I've been following your stuff for years, and it's it's a real honor to have you on my show. So I I, uh, I I'm very very happy to have you on. Oh no, my pleasure. I I enjoy hearing your funny commentary. So thank you. Um, so you like me are are an anarcho capitalist or ancap voluntarist libertarian anarchist or or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I consider myself voluntarist. You know, with a preference for. You can call it anarcho-capitalism or just, right. you know, capitalism. Um, but yeah, pretty much dead on. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing I usually ask my guests is is how they got where they are politically. So how would you say that you became a libertarian and cap voluntarist? Was it a kind of a steady evolution of your beliefs or, or was there some kind of an aha moment? How, how did you get where you are today? Well, I, I had this uh, accident where I tripped and hit my head and I awoke with pa- – no, I'm just kidding. Different story, different story. No. <laughs> bitten um, by an anarchist <laughs> spider. Yeah. And I was bitten by numerous types of radioactive el- uh, animals. You know. I uh, know, but um, yeah, it was actually – uh, That's going to be my new answer. <laughs> yeah. It was actually – that would be pretty convenient, right, if we could just use you know, a, a certain just type of Just bite people with spiders. One, one bite and immediately you're like nice. taxationist. If only, right? Yeah, that would be um, good. <laughs> but uh yeah it, it was a development of my own um kind of intellectual journey through school when i was an undergrad uh i was in a history class and we were learning about the american eugenics movement 
and the case of Buck v. Bell, right. um, Gary Buck was forcibly sterilized. That kind of opened my eyes to the nature of government and made me kind of revisit uh, everything that I was, you know, brought up to believe because I was like, if, if I didn't know about this, what else didn't I know about? Like, right, why isn't right, this talked exactly. about more? The eugenics and forcible sterilization in the U.S., which, you know, some 60 to 70,000 people were forcibly sterilized. That's pretty insane. So <laughs> that kind of is what led me on that path. And then, uh, you know, a couple Alex Jones videos here and there. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the gateway drug too, to the true libertarianism. Yeah, as much as he says some things that are a little off, you know, there's actually a lot of good stuff, especially his older stuff before he went all Trump. Or yeah, but... he, it, it, pre-2015 Alex Jones is definitely preferable too, to post-2015 right, yeah, Alex definitely. Jones. Yeah, he's he's a little nutty, but I mean, my, a lot of stuff he says is is just real history. But um, yeah, then past that, um, Mark Stevens uh, with his No State Project, right. he had a quote there that said, uh, "Should goods and services be provided the barrel of gun?" And that kind of got me to thinking at that core step of, "Oh wow, you know, that really is what it boils down to." Right. Um. So I realized that point to be consistent, I have to make that leap. Uh, because I don't think goods and services should be provided the barrel gun, not by force, you know. Right, so right. that's kind of a, a short, truncated version of of how that came to be. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that's it, I, one of my favorite things. And it's I, my problem is I I keep saving new memes, so I always have to resave this meme. But I like the uh, it's like a flow chart that says without government, who would provide? You know, dot dot dot, and it right. says you know. Is this something that's really needed? And there's either a yes or no. And it says yeah. government. If it's no, it's government shouldn't be doing things that aren't needed. And if it's yes, it would say, mm-hmm. you know, then the answer, the, the next question is, is this something that you would pay for voluntarily? And if the answer right. is no, it would. It goes back to, is this really needed? And if the right. answer is yes, then, then it goes to, you know, if you would pay for it, then you don't need government. If you're willing to, you know, if you're willing to pay for it. So um, right. it's kind of that same thing. If something's actually necessary, we don't. We don't need government to get in, involved, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a Libertopia cartoon that you mentioned too. Probably. Yeah, I've yeah. seen a couple yeah. different iterations, but uh, mm-hmm. it's always a different one because I have to go. I have to Google <laughs> provide flowchart because I've you know I've got it probably saved thirty times on my phone, buried under various <laughs> other ridiculous memes. So I'm sure you have a giant meme folder. My meme folder is. Uh, <laughs> It is impressive. I wish I could search by name or something. I probably because <laughs> yeah. because part of what's impressive about it is the number of duplicates of the same memes that I have. Because right. I I don't want to go back six months ago when I when I saved it last time. So <laughs> yeah. um so yeah no it's a very impressive meme folder and it, and and you've helped contribute to that. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. talk to me about Anarchy Ball. So I uh, yeah. that was the first I had heard of anarcho capitalism. Um and um seeing other people you know talk about it and seeing it on social media anarchy ball was the first time that i really saw like something that was dedicated to you know anarcho-capitalism and so Mm -hmm. it was a really cool thing for me so tell me you know how did you how did you start that so i was brought on fairly early the person who created the ball dimitri um you know had a small group of people he just kind of drew the cartoon and then went from there and it was in the beginning um it was just a smaller group of people who were invited to just kind of help produce content. And so Ben, um, who I don't mind saying Ben Schnittiger, um, he invited me, uh, into that, uh, inner circle is way back. Uh, I want to say at the, like right at the beginning of 2014 and of 2013, um, because of the voluntarist comic series. So they saw, you know, that kind of stuff and they're like, Oh, okay. So, 
you know, they, they brought me in on that, on that kind of, uh, you know, art cartoon binge. Now I don't draw the comics or anything like that, um, that I work with a team of artists, but I do do graphic design. And I do, you know, do some things here and there with design. Like I created the original voluntarist logo. I, you know, did the website, the campaigns, do photography. I have done lettering on some of the comics and some color adjustments and this and that, but oh, okay, cool. That's kind of what, you know, led to me joining in from the early days. And then from there, you know, Eric Ball grew, <laughs> we, you know, grew it on up. It grew quite um, bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, went from, you know, what was the like the early stages, you know, in the thousands. And then it started to hit the exponential curve, you know, with, of growth. Um, and, you know, it, it was pretty incredible because it's kind of funny to think that, you know, it's just little s- silly, you could call it stupid cartoons but right they just hit the point and a lot of people enjoyed it and kind of you know broke down their walls because when it's funny you know people are more open to listen to what you have to say oh absolutely yeah 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 so when it turned it into you know away from like a pure philosophy discussion that's just academic and into like here's some funny jokes or just you know comparisons then people started be like oh yeah i'll follow the page and soon enough like it made actual meaningful change and it became so well known that you know it joined the you know with the wikis on the balls from you know starting with poland ball and so forth so. right yeah i was gonna say so was was anarchy ball the first ball or what i don't i don't know the the etymology mm-hmm. of the balls well i mean anarchy balls is the first ball with an anarchy ball that right. is the you know the genre but in terms of ball comics no there was other ball comics that came first oh, okay, um, okay in terms of like nationalities and countries and stuff oh, like that okay, okay, so okay. dimitri created on the heels of those other uh balls oh, okay um, okay so then because i know like you know some of my favorite ones are when you know anarchy balls uh, interacting with you know i guess ancom ball or agorist ball or or you know all, all these different all these different uh anarchy uh, i guess all the different anarchy balls and and occasionally mm-hmm. america ball shows up and and <laughs> right so that's that's funny to me but um um so and then i guess in that around that same time was when the whole taxation is theft I guess we call it a campaign. It wasn't really a, it didn't really seem like an organized thing it kind of came out of, I didn't know where it came from until I, <laughs> I saw that you had shown how, you know, you were one of the, or I guess the origin, one of the originators of it, that right. um, it just sort of came out of nowhere all of a sudden, you know, it, like one taxation is theft meme. I mean, there have to be thousands of them at this point where, you know, where did that, how did that start? Well, it started because I was reading some criticisms of people saying, Oh, you know, the, rhetoric's too extreme you know saying taxation is after extortion that's just too extreme you need to tone down your language you're not going to do any outreach and whenever someone tells you you know you can't do tone this, it down yeah exactly tone it down and i'm like <laughs> okay just because you said to tone it down i'm going to go like times 10 right exactly so that's when i you know <laughs> went and created specific campaign to propagandize and subversively get it out there and right. my key uh tactic there was to inject it into something that someone would possibly pass over it, which is like this, you know, the whatever f- five or seven th- things, you know, every child needs to hear. Right. So where someone would kind of like half read it, you know what I mean? Right. People kind of like, sometimes they share stuff without fully, you know, going through because they just think it's, oh, that's cute. I want to you know, share that like later. Chicken soup for the people. soul stuff. Right, right, right. Right. And so I use that tactic to get that first mass share, that virality that went, you know, some something over five thousand uh, shares, which at that time in was, Facebook history was significant. Right, right. Um, and that's kind of what triggered that whole 
you know, butterfly ripple effect that people be like, oh my goodness, because, you know, now it got on their plates where it wouldn't have normally because they might have shut it out if they just saw it alone. And then, Cause you know, their, their 68 year old grandmother just shared it thinking it right. was, you know, something about, I said this to my kids too. It didn't. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And then it didn't read all the way through. So that started and then just pushed it and pumped it after that point. Um, because I was like, you know what? That is pretty much the most simple bare bones way you can possibly get people to, to think like really just is, putting yeah. it in there. Boom. Right in your face. You got three words. You can't ignore it. You know what I mean? By the time it, you've looked at it, you've already thought about it. You, you know what I mean? You scrolled past it. You can't ignore it. It's you've already read it. Right, it's over. Right. So that's and kind of the idea. And it's intuitive because it is theft, mm-hmm. and everyone knows that. And all yeah. of the preconditioned crap we've been told about. Yeah, but we need it for this and that. We all know we're being robbed. Like we right. all know that it's not voluntary. There's going to be harm done to us if we don't do it. Uh, it's you know totally mandatory. It's it's happening. It's being done by people who you know. I, I don't know anyone who says you know they might like a particular politician. But mm-hmm. politicians, as an abstract idea, I know very few people are like, yeah, politicians are great. So we all know, you know, it's it's going to politicians, it's going to things, you know, some things that we might, you know, some people might like and some things some people don't like, but there's no choice as to where it's going to go and, that, you know, that type of right. thing. So everyone knows it's theft. So to see it like that, it's it, it, and it's crazy how prolific it's gotten. I've seen, uh, it was interesting during the whole, you know, the the tax cuts debate from, from last year, um, I saw so many Republicans sharing taxationist theft stuff. And I'm like, you know, they're not fully there yet. Like there's still taxes they like, and right. they maybe don't get that tariffs are also taxes and, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, border wall adjustment fees are also taxes, but it, the, the seed is there and they know it's theft. And the next step is to really, you know, challenge their consistency on that. Like, why do you ever like theft? But it's crazy how, like, how prolific that got. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I was shocked by it as well at how successful it was. I mean, I expected to break through in some new ways and, you know, get out more than before, but I, I even, I was just shocked at how well it penetrated everybody's minds. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it was, it was, it was a good thing though. It was mm-hmm. a good penetration. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, it was the good touch. It was the good one. Unlike the unfortunate, though. you know, circumstances of many other people who, keep getting accused of all kinds of things oh, for God's relating sake. to oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. My, my whole thing with that, and I was going to talk about this later, but you know, we'll, we can revisit it. People are yeah. focusing on this thing. Did Brett Kavanaugh do this? Did Brett Kavanaugh do that? And, and yeah. I get it. Like, you know, it's important to know if someone did something like that, if they're going to have a lifetime appointment where they can mm-hmm. control our lives. Um, yeah. There's two aspects to that. One is, Hey, maybe we shouldn't be giving lifetime appointments to people to control our lives. If, you know, if, you know, the fact that they could have been a, you know, a, a, you know, an aggressive frat boy can end <laughs> up hurting us for the rest of our lives and the rest of their lives. And then uh, B, you know, the second part of that is, OK, great. He may or may not have done this. Let's say he mm-hmm. didn't do it. We do know that he's perfectly fine with the government breaking into our homes and, you know, whenever they want to and right. invading our privacy <laughs> whenever they want to. And I mean, right. you know, uh, uh this probably sounds a little edgy, but I would say that Brett Kavanaugh as a judge, as a Supreme Court justice, can do far more harm to us all in, in aggregate than uh, than he could do to any single person in a room. You know, like, I mean, it's, it, it, mm-hmm. it, I, a lot of people probably aren't comfortable with me saying that, but it's it's true. Like, that's 
That right. to me matters more than did he do this or do that. If he did this or did that, then he is or isn't a terrible person. But regardless, I, I don't want him in charge of me. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's just the whole like silly thing is, is that no matter what, you know, whatever the weirdest allegations that arise, you know, come up with with him. It's just the fact of the matter is, is that nobody should be doing what he has done in terms of the legal field and what he supports and accepts i mean right, he the stuff he's proud of doing right, right. yeah i mean i'm you know i'm more concerned in the general sense of course uh of the things that he has done in terms of supporting mass spying war theft um uh, you know on a colossal scale of course you know it doesn't take away from anything that may have really happened in terms of, course, of you right, know, abuse right, or harassment right, it's right. just that's a just as more if not more important going forward a uh, piece of information to consider but of course that's just being ignored for political theater because um, it's more sensational. Right. Right. But well, I will say, you know, go, was go that? Ahead. Oh, I, I am glad, though, in a sense that it is reaching this point because it is becoming near impossible to be a politician these days because now everybody's getting you know, railed for any little thing they've ever done. That's a good point. Um, and it's, be, you know, you really almost have to be like groomed from birth these days in order to even become a politician and like be pretty much a psychopath because yeah, I was say you have to be completely unrelatable. There, right. There's no way with everything that there is now in terms of surveillance technology and images and you're just not going to escape it. You, something you did in the past is going to come back to haunt you because right. It's so easy for anybody to just rally up mass accusations on Twitter or provide actual evidence of something you may have done in college or this or that. So I do appreciate the fact that it is becoming really hard for anybody to, to just get uh, into government in the first place. Yeah, That's a good point. Right. <laughs> yeah, one of my Facebook friends had said uh -huh. something along the lines of, um, I fully support every person who tries to join the government being accused of rape. Uh, and and having their you know confirmation or election held up as a result. So if right. it's applied universally, then you know right. we might be getting some. You know we've been trying exactly. to figure out. It's we've like, been trying to figure out how to achieve the board, baby. Exactly. But like yeah. we've been trying to figure out. We've had this debate on you know how to achieve statelessness. You know, do you go the agorist route? Uh, you know, with with you know uh, black market economics? Do you go through violent revolution? Do you do it through the ballot box with the you know Libertarian Party? It turns out you just accuse them all of rape. You just have mass right. accusations of rape across the board and they effectively are i mean they're they're going to be raping our wallets and raping everybody that's the out thing. here you know you yep. military and everything else so um the tsa right that's all rape there that's sexual assault you know supporting and creating the you know the, the dhs system of uh you know security theater yep. is literally mass sexual assault it is um it is that's real <laughs> yeah i know it is real so, and it's and it's victim blaming too because they're like well you were the yeah. one that wanted to get on the plane Right. Which is really oh no God. different than saying, well, she dressed like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's like, okay, but you don't get to touch my genitals because I wanted yeah. to get on an airplane. Like, that's, you know, my genitals are not a bomb and, and they're no threat to you. So, um, yeah. it's kind of crazy. It's but a, It is. It's a desensitization and um, predictive programming is what it is. And yeah. I, I actually did my doctoral thesis on abolishing the TSA. So, I really am intimately familiar with how just destructive and corrupt it is and how evil it is um but yeah well there have been uh i don't remember numbers but there have been a, a lot of people who have been exposed as sex offenders that have joined the tsa 
And mm -hmm. I think, well, yeah, if you're a sex offender, what else would you want to do but have <laughs> the opportunity to randomly touch people wherever you yeah. want with yeah. little to no stated reason and oversight? That's where I would go. You know, that would make sense. Yeah, and there's a re there was a recent court ruling um, that said it was a, one of the uh, federal districts, the appellate districts, that said uh, you have no recourse to sue TSA agents for their conduct. It's pure political process. In other yeah. words, if they mess you, oh, too bad. You better just petition the government to change something. And it's like, which means nothing will happen. <sighs> yeah, I mean, to me, when I saw that, I was like, this is some next level. Like, yeah. this is absolutely disgustingly yeah, insane. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. It is insane. Yeah. And and it, you know, they keep pushing it further and further and further. Mm -hmm. And and that's why I like taxation is theft and that kind of stuff, because yeah. instead of staying within their Overton window of what's acceptable to talk about, you just yeah. go way over here and you're like, no, this this is what, and, and you say something that's so intuitive that they can't challenge it. It's not theft. Well, how is it not theft? And I, the, okay, so I don't have to pay then, you know, like if, right. you know, so that's, that's really cool. So the, the voluntarist comic series, that's actually, I didn't realize it's been going on a few years, right? Yeah, it's been going on since 2012. Um, and it's, you know, now I'm, I'm doing the origins issue chronology. So I'm going through the kind of basic story and going straight forward from here in the past. Um, I, I was trying to make the story and then, you know, there was some tumult with trying to get funding in this or that. So I kind of just decided to like do some future verse and appeal to try to get more of like an excitement about the story. Right. And then that kind of led to more engagement. And then I was able to go back and like start back at the beginning. And that that's what I've been doing now is like starting with, you know, here's the beginning origin story. Here's the actual like uh, canon tale. Right how it started and everything. So you actually, yeah. cause you did it, you recently did like a crowdfunding campaign that was successful, right? Yep. Yeah. The most recent one was for origins two, And that was the most successful to date, you know, fully funded highest number of backers, high, highest percentage funded. Um, so, I mean, I was ecstatic uh, that it That's reached awesome. that level. I was, I was, you know, you know, floored because I mean, I'm already working in a paradigm that's very small, right? I'm appealing to people who like have to kind of at least like Liberty right. to begin with and be right. okay with reading that. And, you know, and it's a superhero genre. So I'm like in a niche of a niche. So just that alone is actually pretty cool. But like comic this book point, fans that are also, you know, libertarian or at least libertarian leaning. Right. You have to like it enough to support it kind of thing, you know, <laughs> and that's tough because not everybody's likes comic books. They have other enjoyments. So um, I actually am I'm impressed. And it's I, it's kind of, in my opinion, from what I've seen and studied, just reading my net metrics over the years, it's hit that throttling point where um, it's breaking past just being for you know libertarians and caps voluntarists it's starting to actually get some um kind of like indie comic fanfare uh, people who are just interested in indie comics alone who are following the page and stuff like that and who are like keeping up with it so i thought that was kind of cool and that was always the goal anyway is it was always meant to be something that i wanted to uh, make as a real story that you know it's not like pure political propaganda or something like that. it's meant <laughs> to actually be a story um you know just like any other you know right, hero story or comic story but the difference is is and this is the ground breaking element is that the foundational norms are voluntarist norms as you know that's the ethical underpinning for good versus evil um as opposed to democratic ideals or you know american greatness or something like that right exactly right. american exceptionalism american nationalism is is the greatest motif among the major publishers in America, Marvel, DC, and it has been historically actually. And it's really funny when people complain about like, Oh, is your, you're too, you know, on the face with your, 
you know, messaging. And I'm like, and I just pull up uh, pictures of the uh, comic covers of Marvel and DC from the, you know, the thirties, forties, fifties. And it's like them holding flags, saluting presidents, Oh yeah, um, you know, saying to like obey the law <laughs> and all this other stuff, like, you know, saying anarchy is chaos. And I'm like, it, it was always political. Like DC Marvel oh. always actually had a political undertone and American nationalism undertone you know superman was fighting the nazis you know and all this other stuff oh, please. so i mean yeah yeah i'm like i actually fit much more in with the traditional uh comic history and genre w- with what i'm doing than people realize yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean even i mean if you think about during the world war ii period they enlisted right. mickey mouse and donald duck my dad was yep. talking about how like you know mickey mouse was fighting the krauts and and donald yep. duck was in the navy fighting the japs and it's like you know yep. to say oh that's and I mean this is a whole rabbit hole we can go down with you know right. I don't want my sports to be political okay well why is there right. a massive government anthem uh you know theme song uh, right. pageant that everyone has to stand for with you know military jets flying overhead <sighs> but but let's not get political um yeah. so no I mean yeah absolutely I mean art in general it tends to be political and 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 the comic book and and cartoon genres uh especially like you said in the in the in the the, the pre and during war days they were pure in the post-war days where i mean that was cold war propaganda that was how you know that was how and i mean how hat tip for being against communism but you know that that was very strong you know leaning on it and 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 in recent years i guess it's kind of shifted towards like i was saying you know democratic ideals and human rights and sort of more of a moving away from sort of the traditional uh i guess neoliberal uh you know anti-communist anti-nazi pro-america message to to being a uh you know, sort of a, a internationalist, um, I don't know, a progressive uh, thing. And, and a lot of the, the nationalists are very upset that they've moved away from that. And I'm like, you guys started this. Like, you know, you you started uh-huh. this gateway that it's this, you know, political uh, indoctrination for little kids. And now they're using it. So, you know, uh, goose and gander. Right. Yeah. And definitely, you know, Marvel and DC, they tried to appeal to the SJWs and cater to them. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it it flopped because, I mean, it was just stupid to begin with thinking that, oh, if you just change a couple of aesthetics, that's going to like suddenly make your story great. It it didn't, you know, enrich the character development. It didn't make the plots more intricate. It didn't, you know, make a a higher sense of like, uh, you know, justice in the story. All it did was an attempt to like, let's appeal to everybody so they like it. But it's like, those are the people who you didn't like to begin with. So it didn't matter. And that's why there's been so much reactionary uh, comic books coming through the pipeline and especially on Indiegogo you can actually look there's several like you know 80 style like before PC culture comics uh, comics that have been put on there um, in a response an anti-SJW response and they've gotten stupid money like I mean I look at it with a little bit of envy because that's not my goal like my goal isn't just be like oh, I'm an anti-SJW I'm like my goal is about like the universe and the principles but I right, look right, at it and right. it's just like it's pure reaction because everyone just like why do you think you have to like give someone pink hair make them fat and a gay muslim <laughs> like suddenly you know what i mean like that gay muslim uh, captain you know, america like, yeah yeah they're like and they're so strong and they never trained in their whole life but now they're so strong i mean it's just you know what i mean they make up the, the most absurd aesthetic changes right. that add no material intelligence to you know the, the plots or the characters or even you know, social commentary it's, right. it's just bland well, it's sort of the, um, it's sort of the so. comic book version of a Tumblr post where you know, every, and everyone got up and applauded afterwards. So, yeah, so, yeah, so exactly. But um, yeah. So that's so for those who aren't familiar with with the comic series, give me a you know, let's say a I don't know, thirty second one. You can give as long, much long as much time as you want. Kind of a, a Cliff Notes version about what the uh, Voluntarius is about. 
Well, for the next five hours, I'd like to. No, I'm just kidding. No, so like the next, yeah, the next thirty seconds, I'll describe it. So basically, the idea is this uh, character, uh, Jack Lloyd. He is the protagonist of the story, um, and he ends up being affected by a certain cosmic event um, that leads to radical changes uh, in his body. Okay. And while this is happening, uh, the government was planning on doing a type of false flag situation to try to enslave humanity once and for all, because basically people at large, thanks to the internet and culture have really started to meaningfully resist government. It's become popular. And so they're looking for the one last kind of like Reichstag style thing to, um, coalesce support of the government and then clamp down on people and really go after those who are promoting liberty. Um, but this cosmic event kind of throws a wrench in their plans and the development of the characters and what takes place after this event is what, you know, drives the story. You know, basically they're trying to fight for liberty as the government is trying to enslave humanity once and for all in a true kind of totalitarian society. Um, like you'd imagine with, you know, China's social credit system and all that kind of, uh, you know, totalitarian control. So like, it's sort of like a one world North Korea type of thing where statism is completely taken over and there's this one last bit of resistance that's trying to fight it. Exactly. Yeah. There's this last bit of resistance as the government, you know, because the government knows that people at large uh, are privy to the lies because of, you know, the internet um, and, you know, mass alternative media that you know the government really is you know manipulating so they have to go to extreme measures to try to you know finalize a clamp down hmm that's very interesting and so um so that's the that's what the origins is or is that what the the original was that's oh that that is the story so the origin story is is that tale and the other issues i had were either like um, mock-ups of like you know future verse stuff or um you know uh, a, a story that comes in a little bit later um, but it was just kind of to give people a sense of what it would be about and then I you know kind of honed in on the vision and honed in on on the mission with the canon story once I rallied enough support and got you know the artwork together so people can really see it um, and and kind of get it because for a lot of people especially at the onset it's hard to wrap your mind around it right but once I got some of those bare bones down then people kind of saw it and like oh okay I get what you're doing and then you know then I got on board. <laughs> cool, that's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's like you said, there's a lot of reactionary stuff out there. There's mm-hmm. a, almost like an alt-right comic, uh, uh, mm-hmm. if not alt-right, then conservative, you know, reactionary. We want our old style comics back. Right. So that actually kind of presents an opening for you, right? Because there are people that are already pissed off at where mainstream comics have gone and gone and are sort of going despite their plummeting sales. And that sort of gives you an opportunity like, Hey, you're all wrong. You know, come follow me. That's sort of how I've looked at it, you know, with, 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 you know, this podcast that, yeah, I could be real popular by, you know, inciting Muslims and stuff like that. But I, this kind of provides an opening for people that are sick of, you know, the Young Turks or CNN or, you know, that side of things. And they, you know, you now have this opening of people that are, you know, questioning everything to begin with. And you can kind of, you know, take advantage of that exactly yeah and you know i i didn't take advantage of it to the extent that you know i try to pander to the anti-sjw crowd even though that would be a very low-hanging fruit (laughs) but i did i do try to um focus on just really making that foundational norm in the comic consistent and not being afraid to use a higher level language that goes into things that you know really parallel what's going on in the world I really, whenever someone reads the comic, I I want them to actually question 
what's fact and what's fiction in, in terms of pa- real world parallels. I think that it, when you read it, um, it will actually make you wonder as you read, like, wait a second, is this is this actually real? Like, is this a real program? Is this because you're, you're going to find that that's how I interweave it. I, I actually rely heavily on some very scary things that are corroborable uh, with government tyranny, spying, manipulation, and so forth. That, so that are actual real be, things that are happening, right? Yeah, it, it's it's not meant to just simply be pure fantasy. It, it's meant to actually make you question what if it is actually just you know comic superhero lore, and what if it is actually something that is paralleling you know the real world? Right, and when you're doing this, you're having to sort of, as I had to do to myself when when I couldn't when I would be challenged by libertarians and and especially ancaps who would say things that I'm like, you hate America and you don't get it, and, and I'm like man, I really don't have a rebuttal to what they said. And uh, so I, it took me a lot of, you know, re, kind of deprogramming myself a, a lot. And that's sort of what you're doing. And for a lot of people, you're deprogramming years of of government schooling and, uh, you know, of, of indoctrination, of conditioning that, you know, whether they're from the right or the left, they've gotten this sort of authoritarian indoctrination since they were little kids that, you know, if you're in trouble, find a policeman and, you know, and, and moving your way up to, you know, eventually before you know it, you're, you're on the internet explaining why it's okay to, you know, walk into someone else's apartment and shoot them. Uh, and, you know, well, you know, she, she was confused, like, okay, great. So that's not a reason to shoot someone. So, um, you know, that comes from years of, of, you know, indoctrination and schooling. And something you talk about a lot is sort of the, and, and I'm not sure the difference between, so you call it unschooling, and I've and I've seen that before talking about unschooling. What exactly does that mean to you? Un- unschooling is is that just sort of, you know, is that like a homeschooling thing, or is that just the idea of kind of deprogramming what they already learned in school? What what does that mean to you? Sure. So <clears throat> unschooling. Uh, another way of thinking about that is like self directed education. Is this concept that uh, young people are already fully capable of directing their educational path? in that they are already naturally curious. They're already naturally wishing to know about the world, to decode things and interpret things and analyze things. And the best way that is the most ethical and effective way to bring out that natural curiosity is not through threats of force, shame, grades, you know, putting young kids into classes, you know, going hour by hour to the tune of the bell, but rather through letting children have the freedom to explore and play uninterrupted because learning and play are actually synonymous. When you're playing with your environment, you're learning about it, you're exploring, you're taking it apart. Um, and what parents do in that situation, or if, you know, if the child's at a self-directed or unschooling kind of learning center or co-op is there, there is a resource there, there is a guide there, there is a mentor that there is someone to help provide things to spark curiosity uh, but they're not there to be a judge, uh, you know, and, and tell them whether they're A or a B or a C or an F person. Right. They're not there to, you know, dictate what they're supposed to do hour by hour, moment by moment. Rather, they're supposed to be there to, with nonviolent communication and loving support, help kids bring out their natural gifts and talents and help them whenever they have questions or whenever they are not sure about where to find a resource for a certain thing or whatever. So that's kind of the mentality there is fostering a natural love f- 
for learning that already innately exists in virtually all people. Mm. Uh, you know, so that's kind of the unschooling or self-directed learning mindset. And by doing that, you're also no longer teaching them that threatening people, you know, judging people, uh, using sometimes physical or, or, or corporal force against them is not an effective way to get someone to do something like, or, or even an, f- an acceptable way to do it. Um, which is sort of the subliminal message that they get in authoritarianism, including in government schooling, which is that I can make you do this. And that's, it's okay. It's, you know, it's effective to whatever level it's effective, but more importantly, it's okay that I'm doing this to you, which therefore it's okay if you do this to someone else. Right. So the, the hidden compulsory school curriculum is that the government can ethically and effectively centrally plan people's lives because right. that's what school is, central right. planning. Oh, yeah. um, it's the idea that certain people, just because they are older or bigger than you, um, are the authority by default. And whatever they say should trump your emotional needs, should trump your physical needs, should trump you know your psychological needs. And if you say you want something different – then there is something wrong with you. You're dysfunctional. You're abnormal. Uh, you should be punished. You should be put in detention. You should be put on Ritalin. And that's the schooling environment. The schooling environment is is if you don't fit within the certain frame of educational bureaucrats within roughly what amounts to a couple weeks of comparing yourself to people of the same age group, that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And that's one of the most insane and sick mindsets that has destroyed uh, young people for generations now uh, because it teaches young people that um, they are basically worthless and should be used uh, by others, that their individual aspirations don't matter compared to the collective. And without reason, somebody else's values and version of what's best for their lives should always be favored and by force. Um, So, you know, that's why you unsurprisingly have generations of kids growing up thinking that the state is ethical, that the state is the solution and the savior and that violence is the proper and ethical solution for getting what you want out of others. As long as, you know, it's done through the law, that's okay. You know, you can steal as long as you do it. Yeah. The uh, appeal to authority and and legality. Um, And and, and the the crazy thing about that standard that you were talking about, you know, that if you there's something fundamentally wrong with you, if you don't fit the standard is that no one actually fits that standard fully. So sure, everyone has the you know what they say, the thing that needs correcting or in other words, what makes them unique, um, you know, but no one actually fits that standard, which means everyone is being brought into this institution, which is what it is. It's an institution to be corrected. It's, it's, it's really the first exposure that every one of us has. If we've gone to a public school, which I I went partially to a public school, uh, it's our first exposure to the idea of state corrections that when something is wrong with you, uh, it is good and correct and and right, uh, for you to be corrected and, uh, by force against your will, which just feeds into the next concept, which is, and if you're, you know, if you're really incorrect in the future, we put you in a prison and, and now it's like school, except you can't leave and, and, you know, and, and you don't get to leave, but it's the same thing. We, we, you know, have a, have a very, uh, rigid structure that we make you live within. Um, in school it's, you know, from say eight to three thirty or what, you know, whatever the times are. Um, although that time continues to expand how, how long you're actually there mm-hmm. in prison, it's every day for however long we, we say you have to stay there. And it's, it's sort of that, uh, I guess, uh, kiddie introduction to, uh, to imprisonment. 
Right. And yeah, it came from the Prussian model, which was meant to help right. train obedient soldiers and brought over to the U.S. by Horace Mann um, and, you know, used to instill at the time it was a mixture of status values and, you know, uh, a certain blend of Christian values. Um, but fundamentally, you know, distilling it down, it was about obedience to the ruling authority, whoever right. that was and whatever their values were. So, you know, that was the idea is, that, you know, they wanted to have people who would come out and be able to sort them by rank and, and that effectively translated to who is the most ready to die in subservience to the state or later on, you know, to working for whoever was an industrial power, um, you know, in the early 20th century. So, you know, that's what the model is for. Like that is the intent and the purpose. And it's, it's not only was it never a moral model to begin with, but now it's also an inefficient model in the age of the internet. I mean, I was, so the internet wasn't really a thing that people were using prolifically until I was something like 13 years old, 12, 13 years old. But even before that, I remember thinking like, okay, if I can go to a library and find all this stuff out, why do I have to sit in school? You know, why do I need someone who, and down here our schools were not very well performing. So often I'm thinking, okay, this teacher, I'm, let's say eight, this teacher I already know is not very intelligent and <laughs> um, has basically been hired to sit here with us. Why are we doing this? And of course at eight, you assume, well, these are all adults. Clearly they, you know, this is for my own good. But even then I was wondering, by high school, I mean, I barely made it through high school because I, you know, I was fully checked out of like, none of this makes sense. There's no reason for any of this. I already know more, you know, like I may not know a lot about, you know, calculus because that didn't interest me. But like I knew more about history than my history teacher did because that was something that interested me. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point, they're like, well, it's not like you can have a calculator at all times. I got a calculator in my lap and a calculator right here. So, you know, right. and how yeah. often have you used your trigonometry if you haven't? And there are people that are really into that and you can guide them to that and they can become engineers or, you know, coding people or whatever. But for the rest of us, that time could be better spent on us learning the life skills that we're actually going to need and, and use, which, you know, I mean, this generation of, of millennials and the generation under that they don't like know how to read a clock and there's like so many things they don't know how to do because now Mm -hmm. the model has shifted towards teaching them progressive values and uh so they know all about you know feminist dance theory not so much about like you know like how to change a tire or things like that so it's it's not just a, a an immoral model it's an inefficient one right yeah i mean and there's certainly as you just know, diff- different changes taking place, you know, as technology is rapidly advancing. And I see us still, I work with young people and, you know, many of them are losing an ability to write even in, um, you know, standard form, you know, not script, yeah. um, losing ability to even type because they don't need to type anymore accurately. They're on their tablets or cell phones and they That's can speak into it. Yeah. And I've, I've watched it. There's a disintegration of those certain skills. And on one hand, it's like, at first, it's like, I'm, you know, a little unnerving because you're like, oh, my gosh, can these people be able to do anything? <laughs> they when write they, a letter. Right, right. Right. But then it's like you have to realize that many of these things are part of technological transition. It's not a bad thing. It's right. just ch- people are changing how they communicate. No different than someone being a curmudgeon because oh, you know, I used to have to write in script with the inkwell and how, <laughs> you know, how dare right. you quickly type on a computer instead of write, you know, professionally with your ink and mail it through the mail. I mean, and that's, that's, 
that is the mentality that keeps people regressed more than anything is um, holding on to inefficiencies um, out of fear, Uh, you know, not for a rational reason, not for a specifically applied reason, but just out of general fear. And I think that comes from a schooled mindset. The schooled mindset is if you don't know this, you're a dummy. If you don't do well on this test, you're a dummy for life. You're, you know, you're stupid. Uh, oh, you got to be okay. You're not as good as the A people. You don't get to go to the honors dinner. It, it's this mentality of a constant state of fear instead of accepting the fact that there's so much knowledge and you know it's so inconceivably huge. And even the best polymaths in the world can't hold a candle to computers. You know that yeah, it's that impossible. can have yeah. a yeah. you know borderline artificial intelligence because it's not true artificial intelligence, but. It, you know, I mean, computers that are beating people at all kinds of trivia and tests and, you know, games. And it's it's just recognizing the the reality that you're not going to be able to know everything. Obviously, you know, it seems like it should be obvious, but school makes it seem like as if, oh, you know this and now you ever you're, you know everything you know now. Everything, you went to school. Right. right. Um, it's just not true. I and have an honor. Get, I have a master's in X, Y, Z. It's like, well, you don't know everything about that. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, PhD is literally just, you know, uh, you know, a little nugget of sand, you know, on on the beach of time. That's what it boils down to. Uh, And when you come to accept that and you come to realize you don't have to be knowledgeable at every single thing, you don't have to be, you know, a polymath who knows, you know, a whole bunch of different things. You can just focus on doing you doing the skills that work best for you and making that market, you know, ready. You know, you could just have so much inner peace. And I think that's also, you know, tying to the dysfunction of school is that there's this mentality of if you're not, you know, a straight A student, you're just going to be a bum, you know, and it's just not it's just not reality. It's It's not not reality. reality. It's not reality. Uh, The richest person on earth uh, or often the richest person, he kind of I guess Jeff Bezos is now, but Bill Gates dropped out of college. Um, uh, 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 Zuckerberg, he dropped out of college. Yeah. Uh, Bezos, I'm not 100% sure of. There are people that are only high school graduates. Um, I don't think anyone could accuse Trump of being the most uh, 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 lettered person out there. And I mean, he's, you know, extremely wealthy. So I mean, not that wealth is, is the only barometer for success. But it, you know, when you're a billionaire, it's certainly a barometer for success. There are plenty of various and, and, and at levels that, you know, aren't, you know, millionaires or, or, or whatever, there are plenty of successful people that, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't honors. They weren't necessarily even good at school, but they were very intelligent at specific things. And they, they right. went on to do very well in that because they didn't listen to people telling them, well, you need to get an, uh, you know, you need to get a, you know, a, a degree in this or a diploma in this before you, uh, before you go in and, you know, do what you want to do. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, I, and one of those streaks of success that I've consistently noted is that, some of the most successful people are the people who recognized that they didn't have to put it on the check marks of every single thing in education in order to be successful. They right. had to focus on what their vision was and work toward that. And one of the, my first encounters with that, because you know I was like a straight A student, honors, did very well, standardized tests, all that other stuff. But one of my first experiences that kind of like opened my eyes wide was I was at um, my undergrad, uh, UF. And there was, uh, someone who created a video game company. They had middling grades. They had like bottom C grades in their program, but it was because they didn't care about it. They were just there, but they were busy building a physics engine that they sold for $10 million, you know, a gaming physics engine. (laughs) Screw your grades. I'm going to go be a millionaire. Yeah. 
Right. It, it just was one of those, it was a wake up call to me at that time. You know, I didn't fully envelop it at the time. I, I, need, I still need more learning and self-knowledge, but it was my first wake up call of realizing, oh my goodness, like, you know, if you're going to be successful, it's not about just appeasing other people for the marks. It's about appeasing the market. And that's the big difference. There's a big difference between getting good marks and getting good at the market. Oh, and definitely, yeah. That, you know, and that's something that I think is lost because of of the schooled mindset. Um, and you know, it's not like it isn't valuable to like learn certain pieces of information about life or math or whatever. It's just that if you think, oh, if I just go to these classes or if I just you know passively go through and just you know get some degree or liberal arts degree, this or that that you know success is just going to come to you on a silver right. platter. You're lying to yourself it's, it's because lie. that's not what makes most people successful. I mean, you might be a good employee for somebody if you have like straight A's and, you know, honors in college and you might, right. you know, land a job or something, but it's not going to, it's not going to be game changing necessarily for you. You have to have a continued, a continued, uh, learning mindset. You have to have a passion for, uh, wanting to succeed on your own terms. Right. And that is crushed in school. Yeah. Absolutely crushed. We, we look at most I mean, young people. I mean, look, we, how many trillions of dollars is the student debt bubble now? So that people can have a ridiculous amount of education in what is often not a marketable skill. And, and even worse, even if it is a marketable skill, they don't know how to market that skill. And so they show up and now they're a barista or they're, you know, at Starbucks or they're, you know, working fast food or they end up in a, in a uh, uh, there are many people that end up successful in a career that had absolutely nothing to do with their degree. They're, you know, they're paying off their degree and being successful in something that they, they could have started years before having never gone to college. You know, at this point, the only things that it seems like it makes sense to go to, a, you know, a traditional college are things that are where it's required by government for you to do that. You know, like if you want to be a doctor or, a, you know, a lawyer or, you know, uh, uh, you know, something like that. You know, if you want to be a doctor, you have to do these things in order to be an, a, a doctor, which is an indictment of that requirement because if that's the only reason you're going if you can become a doctor you know i mean I, when i was diagnosed with ms i routinely go and sit in front of neurologists and talk more intelligently about ms than them even though they you know went to school for eight years uh i studied my illness and and you know continue to mm -hmm. study my illness because Honestly, obviously, it interests me to know, right. you know, how to possibly, you know, stop it or, or, or at least, you know, live with it better or, you know, stop its progression or whatever. And, and so that's what, you know, your passions are what, what are going to guide you, not, you know, not a requirement. So that's an indictment of that system. So something, this kind of feeds into something else that you talk about a lot is, and I guess it starts, I'm not sure if it, which is the chicken and which is the egg, but they sort of work together in tandem, which is, you know, the, the authoritarian style of parenting as opposed to gentle parenting. Um, now, well, first of all, let me, let me give you a chance. What would be, what, how do you define gentle parenting? So uh, like peaceful parenting is uh, an active parenting. Sorry. Oh no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, so peaceful parenting is an active mindset of looking for connection with young kids um, instead of looking for judgment um, and looking for punishment. And with that looking of for connection, uh, a parent is actively engaged in seeing how they can talk to their child, reason with their child, and be a loving support with affirmation and with, you know, questions um, instead of relying on 
threats, ultimatums, um, and you know, ultimately violence in order to get what they want out of their kids. Right. Right. Yeah, and um, that's kind of the core of it. There is it's it's a psychology, and it requires a bit of self knowledge work to even do. You have to understand your own hurts from your childhood and the ways that you communicate with others before you can effectively do it. Because if if you don't, you might end up, you know, saying hurtful things or acting out in anger. Um, if you haven't worked through those things, but once you've mastered that kind of self-control to some extent, then it's an application with kids and always actively looking for ways to reason, to, um, you know, be peaceful in, in your communication by instead of, you know, calling names um, or uh, asking things in a way that kind of shames a child or, you know, you know, makes them feel lesser of a person. Uh, you know, that that's kind of this, uh, psychology and mentality that's applied within peaceful parenting okay yeah and I, I so this is one that i i and i'm not a parent so full full disclosure there i have i have dogs and it's a lot easier to deal with dogs because you can you can you they are dogs that dogs are really good with structure you don't you don't have to reason much with them it's sort of like sit and they they learn that when you say sit they sit so it's a lot more binary than with uh, another human being um my exposure, I guess, if you could call it that, to gentle parenting, peaceful parenting. Uh, so I, I've seen it applied with mixed success. And, and that's why I, I have a few questions. And, and I, I guess my two biggest things are, um, one, how do you reason with a eight-month-old, or I guess not eight-month-old, but a, you know, a, a one-and-a-half-year-old or a two-year-old uh, that's screaming no and, and you know, isn't fully uh you know that that the part of their their brain that is you know processing uh you know reason and things like that isn't isn't fully there there's it's it really a lot of you know feed me feed me feed me going on as opposed to you know you're not dealing with the full nuance of a, of a, of a person that quite yet there and then my other question is uh or they're just so full of energy that the, the nuance is lost um and then my, my other question is i have seen people who have done the or maybe maybe they're doing it incorrectly have applied you know the idea of because let me take another step back. I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure that there's ever a reason to, to hit a kid. I, I'm not a. I, I. I was only a handful of times ever hit, and it was always in anger. Uh, there wasn't really any, you know, direction going on there, and so it was, you know, it it, it. it happened a handful of times, and and it is what it is, and, and it's not uncommon for kids to say that. Um, so I'm I'm not a fan of it. I'm not sure that that's ever there. But then I've I've seen where people take it to the next step and say, you know, there's no grounding, there's no, or or, or it seems like sometimes very little discipline. And I've seen these kids that are nightmares. Um, you know, they're mm. they're eight, nine, ten years old, and you can't even ask them to do something. They're they're you know they 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 have they figured out that their parents aren't going to do anything, and they sort of you know have taken advantage of that and run roughshod over it what are your thoughts on those two things? You know, is it being done wrong? Am I looking at it the wrong way? You know, what, what are your thoughts on those two questions? Sure. No, that's a great question. So the first one about specifically reasoning with a child before they, you know, may have the ability to kind of talk with you or speak with you, especially if they're, you know, just past infancy heading toward the toddler stage. Right. Um, the first part is to think about young children and, and to remember that they're new consciousnesses <laughs> to the experience of life. And, much of what they're doing is trying to figure out their environment. You know, they're trying to understand what are sounds and 
you know, what is hot, what is cold. Right, right, right. Yeah, they're still learning basic foundational stuff. Right. And so very often when you're dealing with helping a child overcome these, um, you know, under, you know, pains or, or misunderstandings of their environment there, you know, there's a, there can be attempts to reason to, to talk with them, but understandably there's going to be a large portion that that's not necessarily going to uh, register with them yet. They're, t- they're too young. Um, so the question is the compared to what, well, why would somebody hit a small helpless child? A, there can be attempts to understand the- why you're heading to begin with. Um, and who's just trying to understand their environment. So to me that, you know, there's no, there'd be no reason to even be doing that to begin with. Um, but rather to, as a parent, um, be aware of what's happening with the child and look at the environment, look what, you know, came before that sound wise, food wise, event wise, because right. a changes and changes to a, a little kid's environment can be very startling. And so right, right. Uh, that's a matter of patience. And that's a matter of, you know, if, if a, a kid's crying, obviously, you know, you you don't want to ruin other people's lives or experiences with crying kids that, you know, it's annoying. It's rude. So right, right, right. You have to be prepared to take them out of whatever environment is and, uh, you know, gently calm them down with love and affection and affirmation. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's very sad that many parents, uh, unfortunately rely on hitting, uh, these little helpless kids yeah, I'm, um, I've never been to silence them. It's, it's really tragic, yeah. but it's, it's often because they don't have the tools. They, you know, no one ever taught them it was how it's done to them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. They're, they're continuing on that path of violence. And of course, violence, quote unquote, you could say works violence, of course, gets obedience. You know, that's why it was slavery whipping their backs. Uh, that works. Right. It gets, right. Them. Of course, violence can get a result. But the question is, is what are the consequences and what are the ethics? And right. just, you know, like the very deleterious, uh, damaging, you know, aspects to you know physical violence, whether it's the body or the brain, uh, you know, th- there's going to also be consequences later on in life psychologically and how they respond to other people and how they treat others. And that's what, you know, kind of encapsulates that. And I, I could get into more of the hard science and the amygdala and, you know, fight yeah, 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 of course, of course. But um yeah, you know, that's how I'd view that. And then on the other part with uh, what it sounds to me like I hear negligent parenting, not peaceful parenting, because uh, it's a peaceful, mix parenting, of peaceful and negligent. Yeah. Yeah. Peaceful parenting doesn't mean no consequences. And a lot of people have that misinterpretation or, you know, they themselves don't really understand what they're doing. Right. But no, it's not no consequences. There are absolutely consequences that peaceful parents implement. But most often how it's done is that peaceful parents are giving their kids such a life worth living. I'm not saying, oh, they're buying them Ferraris or something. I'm, I'm right, saying right, right. in terms of love and attachment and opportunities for, um, you know, engagement and for affirmation, affection, a peaceful parent gives their, their child it in such a way that the withholding of that is itself a terrible thing. And peaceful parents that I have seen who have learned the you know, methods of peaceful parenting and applied it consistently. And that's a you know key part is the consistency. Right, right. Um, are able to get that uh, uh, resonance with their with their children because they have been consistent in how they treat to begin with. And so when they withhold whatever it is, maybe it's a going to a movie or going to a certain event or some type of nice thing, right. they are uh, then uh, able to have a child understand that there are consequences for their actions without, you know, just yelling at them and hitting them and things like that. And, you know, where this becomes difficult, I think, for a lot of people is that if they're working with kids who 
already had lots of harm and abuse or right. had dis- other dysfunctional communication, it's it's much more difficult, you know, especially a child of divorced parents and things like that. Now you're dealing with more layers of psychological harm and trauma that have to be overcome. Right. That would be the case no matter who it is, you know, no matter who you're dealing with. If there's some other type of trauma or harm, you would have to figure out how to give that love and affirmation um, so that they feel secure in their attachment, you know, to their you know, mom and dad. So, you know, that's what it really boils down to. And it's to just simply say that pa- peaceful parenting is not easy. It's not yeah, an easy task. It sounds um, like you're, you're, yeah. you're breaking yourself down a little bit before you ever even get to the kid, because you're, you're having to deal with why you would even have that reaction in the first place. You know, why right. would you react angrily to this as opposed to recognizing what the kid's going through and, and, and calmly, you know, correcting and, or, or, you know, removing from, cause that, cause that was my question. I'm thinking, you know, so with peaceful, you know, kids about to walk up to a stove and touch it, you know, you right. pull him back and say no. Right. Like, or, you know, I mean, it, you're not just, right. well, you know, he's living his life. Like, I mean, there's, there's obviously boundaries and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, uh, not necessarily physical removal, but there are times where, especially at the younger age where you're having to kind of maybe stop them from doing something and then explaining what's happening as opposed to, you know, knocking them over because they were getting near the stove. Right. And that, and that's all like, it's, it seems like obvious maybe to like principal voluntarists or ANCAPs, but right. these are all, common concepts that you expect with property rights anyway you know what i mean right. who owns the stove who owns the street who owns the road i mean right. if right. you're stopping your kid you know grabbing their hand before they touch a hot stove i mean it's your stove you're stopping you know them from touching it it's not a weird thing right but there's of course a stark difference between i'm grabbing a child's hand in the moment to stop them from about to touch you know touch a stove and burn themselves um and oh, I'm gonna now spank you so you don't touch a stove. You know, and- <laughs> the tactical McNuke approach to stay <laughs> right. away from my stove. And you know, I've had this conversation with family and, and all this other stuff. And you know, I, I've you know, I've seen the tendencies that are there because of past abuse to want to rationalize. Oh, I need to hit them so they don't do it. But I've also seen how when it's done properly and effectively in kindness, parents have been able to just simply go with their little kid and have them come close to the stove without actually touching it and be like, see, and they say the words hot, hot, you know, and they, and the kid feels the heat without getting burnt and they, right. they get it. They understand that. And that's how you build an intelligent kid. I mean, my gosh, do you want a kid <laughs> you know what I mean? who just understands things through, Oh, I'm going to get beat or not get beat. Right, fight exactly, or, flight. Yeah. or you want them to be like, Oh, they explore their environment and they understand words and make associations. I mean, if you want a bright kid, that is the way to do it. Right. So because they're they're reasoning, um, they're learning and reasoning with themselves and figuring stuff out as opposed to like, I'm not doing this because I was told not to and I don't want to get hurt or I was threatened that something bad would happen if I did this. Like for the longest time I was told I I brought up the stove thing. I was told by my dad that if I because I was a stubborn kid, I was told if I touched the stove while the burner was on, I would die. Just die, not burning, just die. And so it took I mean, it wasn't until I man, I want to say. And so I didn't touch the stove, understand. And, and I wasn't scared of the stove and I'd use the stove and whatever. It wasn't until I was like 13, 14 years old and I had that thought because the stove was burning. I thought, wait a minute, you're not going to die. Like, I mean, it's, but, it, but it was so, you know, when you're, when you're told that right. at, you know, five or six or however old I was, <sighs> it really stuck with me. And, right. uh, and it, it took me a moment. I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't die. You'd burn and it would hurt you and you might have to go to the hospital or something like that and, right. you know, get an antibiotic or something. But you're not <laughs> going to just drop dead because you touched the stuff. But, it, you know, it's it, stuff uh, that gets ingrained when you're that young. It, it really right. sticks with you. Um, so I can imagine for someone that got hit a lot, and I'm in the Deep South, I watch, especially <laughs> grandparents, they just beat the brakes off their kid over, like, 
yeah, you know, sad. and then the alternative seems to be parents who have just checked out and let the kid run around wild. And it's like, man, it seems like you just, those are both examples of what not to do. Like you can't let the kid run wild without under, without giving them an understanding that they don't have yet. Uh, and, and at times having to actually, you know, correct them and remove them, but you also can't like go back to, you know, the feudal times where you just beat them senseless because, you know, because they, you know, crossed a boundary or asked you a question or something. So, so, okay. So I, I, that makes more sense to me because I've seen people who say peaceful parenting and then they'll say like, well, you never say no to your children or you never, you, you don't tell your children they can't do something. You, you give them options and it's like, okay, that, that, that can definitely work, but there may be times where they don't want those options and it's a one and a half year old. So he doesn't tell you what option he wants. He just runs to go do the thing. And so, mm-hmm. so, so it's it's good to hear there is some some level of you know boundary there, but it's it's a gentle boundary, and it's one based on yeah. their best interest, not on anger that they're daring to do the thing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's so. Thank you for for explaining that to me. And and it, yeah, again, it does it does sound like before you even try this, you really need to get into yourself on what's what's triggering that kind of reaction to begin with. So, right. So that's good. The one last thing I want to talk about before I give you the chance to, to, you know, give your final thoughts and plug everything in. I tend to end all of my shows with bashing communism and socialism <laughs> uh, because uh, we here at my fellow Americans and at muddied waters media in general, we believe that um, communists and socialists are, are actually slightly worse than wild hogs because even though they're all violent squatters, um, the uh, pigs at least take care of their families and uh, they have tusks, <laughs> which are awesome. Who doesn't like tusks? Um, so I want to talk to you about this because uh, it gets discussed on Anarchy Ball and just in libertarian cir- circles in general. Libertarian socialism or you know, libertarian communism, anarcho-communism, the idea that if, if the state is removed, we'll all just voluntary, voluntarily group into these collective hierarchies. Um, so... Yes, the term libertarianism originally was coined by socialists uh, who ironically don't believe in property. Um, So I guess it's ours now. And, uh, you know, we homesteaded it or however they say (laughs) it. Um, Talk to me about, it seems like, and you can just as easily say it with these identitarian alt-right types, Austro-fascist or whatever they call themselves. What is this tendency of, of authoritarians in general and socialists and communists in in particular who seem to glom on to libertarianism and try to make it their own where do you think that comes from um well i mean they're just holding on to i think they're you know identitarian uh you know politics because by and large when it comes to communism and socialism they're the people who tend to like those things get really into them um are very much into really like, into them yeah yeah the, they're more into, like they're they're very much into like the literature right and the heroes of that um you can say uh that blend of, of, of thought and in a lot of ways they very often get wrapped up into it almost like uh, almost, I would say, like getting wrapped up into uh, Star Wars or something like that, where they be- they become so focused and wrapped up in it, they're like they're having these like micro debates about like different flavors of communism or socialism. Right, right, right. They they often can't even speak about the principles of the economics without just directly you know citing or quoting them um, because 
you know, for them, it's, it's like this holistic identity wrapped up, um, in, in those people and, and in those writings. Um, and I, I think when you attack, you know, that it's like, that's their foundation. That's their that's belief their system. Right. 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 They don't, it, because it doesn't have a material, um, I guess you'd say ethical outward application for them in the real world, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I mean, they're not really applying this day to day by and large. Um, you know, they live in a, what's a mixed economy and, right. you know, they're not exactly, you know, rent isn't theft and, uh, you know, they, they don't have a means of production um, to seize and they're not working with each other by and large, you know, the socialists haven't gotten together and redistributed yet. And the communists haven't gotten together together and you know created a commune uh with uh, you know a shared means of production you know by and large so right. and usually when they try most of those businesses actually fail you know people who try to do the shared you know let's do a communist you know bread or sandwich shop they usually you know meet meet problems with supply and demand um so to me i i definitely see a connection there where the people who are very much into socialism communism are kind of literary buffs who are you know big fanboys of just the texts and the and the authors so when you you go after that it's kind of like their identity because there's nothing they can't really i mean by and large again there's always gonna be nuances but right. they have difficulty arguing application right and that's right where we we often find the differences with voluntarists and the people who are who are espousing those views is when right. you get to say well let's look at the concrete detail of how this works how would this if play I out exactly give this yeah. person money yeah and you know and they say okay you know and then they're stuck in this rut because they're they're holding up in you know ideological uh, utopia in terms of everybody always has to agree for their ideology. You know, I mean, voluntarists you don't necessarily need everybody to agree per se, right? Um, just not to aggress upon one another. Just not to aggress upon. You don't have to believe in your every flavor of this or that or exactly. social norm. Right, right, right. Um, you know, whereas you know, yeah, the communists and socialists. Need you to, I mean, gosh, everyone you has to agree, and, which is what's yeah. crazy to me. And I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're good. You're good. No, I, I like you said, they don't. And, and like you said, there is nuance. There are some and caps that are similar where they just sure their answer is going to be, you know, many paragraphs of Rothbard or, or you know, absolutely on Mises or whatever. And, and, and they're, you know, that's the, they're very cerebral in there. And, and that is sort of their, I guess, their, their way of, of, of answering that or they haven't thought of it. Um, communist and socialists tend not to want to talk about application or they'll like bring up uh you know the the they'll bring up norway because that's <laughs> not that's not also a mixed economy with right. a you know somewhat centrally uh planned economy but there's still some private ownership of means of production and a lavish welfare state that relies on uh, uh, that relies on, uh, you know, massive exploitation of, of uh, natural resources. That's, that's clearly where, where communism is headed is we're all going to be Norway. Um, but, mm-hmm. but when they do talk about application, it almost is always very violent and is, you know, all the, you know, rent, uh, all the landlords are going to have to be lined up and killed. And, you know, the sure. bourgeois, which is what the literature is. I mean, the literature is very, you know, the bourgeoisie are going to have to be dealt with and the, and the, you know, aristocracy is going to have to be dealt with, which is why every single, you know, communist revolution has been massively violent, not just from the beginning, but then even more so once the actual, um, once the actual, uh, you, people get in charge, they become the new, you know, brutal totalitarians. Um, right. so, so it's, it, it's very interesting to me that they, but that they do that and that they're, why libertarian, but we, 
I guess that's my question. Why libertarianism? Like, I could see why a communist would be drawn to the Democratic Party because there there's, you know, aspects of, you know, that's sort of like, you know, socialism light or whatever. I can see why the why the 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes are being drawn to the Democratic Party trying to push it to the left or why on the other side, the the reactionaries, the, the alt-right people, the, you know, or the alt-light or, you know, the, the, the authoritarian right is drawn to the Republicans. Why are some of them drawn to people who are like, we don't want to do any of this. We just want to do our own thing and 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 leave people alone is it that they really think what they're doing is true libertarianism or is it that they see this as the one you know the one true pure opposition to what they're doing so they have to sort of co-opt it oh yeah i would say the latter i mean there are some of course who are like yeah i'm a libertarian socialist i wouldn't actually like apply rent is theft through violence right. i would you know want my own community but no I, from what i've seen by and large it's it's the same old same old it's it's just right. people who are trying to co-opt and like with, with any ideology that is, you know, a robust extreme to the mainstream culture, it's it's very much like religious fervency for a lot of people where they go yeah. through dynamic changes yeah. very suddenly and they're like really excited about it. And then the next moment they're changing their tune and, and you know, going in a different direction. Right, I see right, that right. time and again. There are very, you know, few people in that vein who stick around for long without ending up, you know, coming back full circle, become a tanky or whatever. Because... <laughs> You sort of have to, right? Like, I mean, you have to become a tank right. at some point. And with those views, you know, it's it is a extremely violent ideology in terms of what they consider necessary for uh, justice, uh, in terms of who needs to be killed. Um, whereas, you know, you know, ag- uh, agricapitalism or voluntarists a little bit more passive in that regard. Where you know, we just, I would say, that hopefully, this is fairly characteristic for what i've seen it i would say but uh more we're more interested in dismantling the power structures that are murderous we right. don't want more people dead we don't want more bloodshed we right. want just the wars to stop right and it's not about vengeance stop. right yeah yeah it's not right about, it's not about yeah. vengeance it's not you know by and large you know absent people who actually were murdering people you know it's it's the focus is actually about how do we curtail those structures of what are it, actual forms of institutional violence and mass murder right so you know i think that's a big difference and i think a lot of people end up flaking in that vein because they get very fervent about it but they haven't been grounded ideologically and then right. once they finally push up against the grain of well let's actually walk through step by step right what you actually believe let's get out of the books for a moment and these other authors and generalizations of bourgeoisie and proletariat right, right. let's actually walk through and let's talk about the specific actions of what you imagine when you get up there, it gets pretty gnarly. <laughs> when you, you know, eat it, and suddenly, like, uh, that voluntary action is not really voluntary. And uh, yeah, you know, he's oppressing you just by <laughs> virtue of you know having you know stuff, having and then, stuff, and that then he can't like, carry on his back, you, which is very ableist, yeah. by the way, because they're like, oh well, if you can carry it, what if I can't carry? I have MS. I can't carry. Uh, you know, I, I right now I'm doing pretty well, thank God, but. You know, in the future, if you know, there I've met people with MS. They can't carry anything. So what? They can't own anything. Do they get to own their wheelchair? They're in it. Oh Wheelchairs carrying yeah. them. Like if you, you have know, two wheelchairs, that's now you you know, private wheelchair. property. Now we're going to seize the second one. No travel wheelchairs. <laughs> Only so. the one wheelchair, which is yeah. uh, there isn't a lot of wheelchairs in communism or food. Um, <laughs> yeah, or food. yeah. I, one thing I asked them, and it, and it seems to flummox them. Like, how do vacations work? Oh are you God. ever going to go on vacation? And if so, where are you going to stay? Are are, are yeah. the proletariat going to just create these, you know, massive unused 
uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, multi-dwelling facilities that people can use it for no reason at all in particular? Like, I mean, how, how does this actually work? And, and it's like you said, they, they, they tend to not want to do that and instead fall into, uh, you know, uh, counter memeing, which is always weak because the left cannot, right. the left can't. <laughs> um, yeah. so it's, it's, it's sad to watch, but, um, you know, I, I think they come from, I would, some of them don't, but I think most of them come from a good place. They've probably seen a lot of poor people being exploited by rich people and understandably they're against that. And I think they're not recognizing that in a free market that happens less because people aren't stopped by the state from finding the better alternatives because the, they aren't, you know, forced into, you know, uh, uh, state mandated uh, and state sponsored banking systems. They're not forced into, um, you know, they, they, there aren't massive barriers to entry into different markets so that it's, it's a lot easier to have competition and you can't, you can't use the state to create regulations that make you into a de facto monopoly. Um, so a lot of the things that communists hate about what Marx called capitalism, um, which, which is sort of this mixed economy, you know, a, a status system in a, in what we call capitalism in a, in a, in a free market capitalism, those things wouldn't exist or would be a lot smaller than they are now. But I think when you, when you get caught up, like you said, in the literature and everything else, you end up where it's sort of like, you know, you're like a really annoying star Wars fanboy that, you know, that, uh, that is also violent. Um, which again, the pigs are better. Um, but, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's very interesting to me, but, um, uh, Jack, thank you again for joining me tonight. And, And before I let you go, um, this is your chance to give us any final thoughts, anything that we didn't get to talk about or that you wanted to reiterate on, uh, anything that you want to plug, any upcoming stuff that you want to talk about. Uh, the floor is yours, uh, Jack, for any any final thoughts you have. Awesome. Yeah, I got to hustle it up because I got some notices here that I'm supposed to go to dinner. But Oh, no. Okay. Short- yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You're good. Go ahead. You're good, you're good. It's, it's been really good. Like, I wanted to finish out strong. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to check out with what's going on with the comic, it's volcomic.com, V-O-L-C-O-M-I-C.com. And you can link to, like, the YouTube, Facebook page, all that good stuff there. Um, the, and, uh, yeah, right now I'm just finishing up the latest issue. It's running a little bit late um, just because our primary artist, he got sick for a few weeks. But, obviously, I'm always – going to deliver finish up strong i can't wait to make the next issue so i'm really excited for that too um and uh anybody who's out there if you've ever been on the edge of you know thinking about what you could do for liberty i just always give this idea to anybody who's like wondering how they can you know do something just think about your personal skills think about what you enjoy most and whatever it is just apply it there whether you make a youtube video about your love for guitars and happen to mention you know something about the Mises institute in the comments or you know in the blurb about it or if, you know, you're doing something with, you know, food or you do something with if you're political, whatever it is, like whatever you enjoy, if you enjoy comics, if you enjoy, you know, whatever guns, I mean, just somehow think about what you can do to inject that discourse within it and, uh, you know, live it. That's that's what it's about. You know, starting with yourself, get the self-knowledge, do the self-work and, you know, keep that growth mindset and that's what's going to really make big long-term change because lots of people just flake out because they don't do that self-work and they don't think about how they apply their principles uh, to their life and, you know, and their passions. Right. Right. That's good stuff. That's, that's great advice. I guess that's what I'm doing on this show. And I hadn't really uh, unpacked that as to what I'm doing. (laughs) 
I thought I was just egotistical. That sounds much better. Um, yes, if you're egotistical narcissist, just use get a that podcast. Well. <laughs> did it? No. <laughs> no, that's perfect. So don't go that far. Yeah, yeah don't go as far as me because because I don't want to have to compete with you. Um, Jack, thank you so much. If you can stick around for one more second, I'm just going to talk yes. to you while the outro music's going, and then yes. uh, and then I'm going to let you go to dinner because I, I definitely don't want to keep you from eating. Oh, yeah. um, but guys, okay. thank you so much again for joining. Uh, uh, me, Spike Cohen, and my guest, Jack Lloyd, for this episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, join Muddy Waters Media tomorrow on the writer's block where Matt Wright will be uh, uh, interviewing Alex, I think, Snitker? Snitker? Who is Alexander the, Snitker. Yeah. Alexander Snitker, who is, see, Jack, no, thank you, Jack, uh, who is uh, currently the executive director of the RLC, the Republican uh, Libertarian Co- uh, Con- Coalition? Yeah. Anyway, yes. the RLC. Martin. And yeah. uh, uh, so if you're curious what the RLC means and you don't believe what I just told you, be sure to tune in tomorrow. Um, but again, on behalf of myself and Jack and Muddy Waters Media and my fellow Americans, thank you again for joining us and we will see you next week. God bless you.